Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, help us to stop running away and help us to draw near. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you know, uh, my wife and I were very graciously given a trip to Europe, and we were able to sail the Danube, which was a beautiful thing. Uh, We were able to see five different countries, eat way too much food, and... um, I drink a lot of water, and and that was a joke. And uh, you know, it was it was really wonderful. There were only a few uh, uh, dull moments late at night where we decided to watch movies. And one of the films that I watched was a documentary about Fred Rogers uh, called "Won't You Be My Neighbor." Some of you have seen it, and it's in, in fact quite moving. It's uh, an expose on really his ministry to children. And the film uh, um, delves into largely unknown territory and sometimes the painful motivation uh, for Mr. Rogers' neighborly emphasis. And you may know his story. I did not know it. But evidently, when he was a young boy, uh, Fred Rogers was viciously, viciously mocked and bullied for being overweight. And it caused him a great deal of pain. But he didn't talk about it with anybody. Instead, he would artistically express his feelings through um, characters and puppetry and those sorts of things. Uh, But being bullied for many years taught Fred Rogers about the needfulness of neighborliness uh, and what it really means to bear one another's burdens. And I want to speak about neighborliness today. What does it really mean to be a neighbor, especially given the parable that Jesus offers? You know, for most Jews of the first century, not all, but most, neighborliness meant caring for your immediate family. Maybe, maybe people in your Jewish tribe, maybe people within the Israelite community more broadly, but for most people, that's where the walls were built, right? Outside of that, people are strangers, and to quote one Hindu scholar, the tears of strangers are mostly water. Uh, And and yet we have a a recasting of the whole concept of neighborliness through the lips of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the resident genius that he was. So let let me uh, talk to you about this parable, which involves the theme of non-neighborliness and the theme of true neighborliness. And then at the end of the sermon, I'm going to offer a call to the church in general, but also the call to this church. Uh, the context is, is important. The context is found in verses 25 through 28. Jesus encounters a theological attorney. You know, if you think sometimes attorneys can be challenging, and some are, some aren't, but if you think there, imagine a theological one, right? Uh, somebody with religi- a religious background who is uh, who's sometimes serves as a prosecutor in court, but is mostly just a legal expert in Judaism. And he's beginning to think about longevity, in fact, everlasting longevity, and he, he has massive questions about what it would mean to persist at, 
uh, at the end, right? To, to live through death, in a sense. He wants to understand how that can happen. How can I, as an individual who is wasting away and who might be riddled with diseases and getting more wrinkly, you know, by the year, how is it that I'm going to make it? Yeah. So he asks Jesus about this very thing. And what's really interesting to me is how Jesus responds. He said, well, you're the lawyer. <laughs> you tell me. Basically, that's in the Greek. Um, it's not, though. Um, so you're the lawyer. What do you think? And then the lawyer gives a summary, and he, he's, he's a genius, by the way. He understands how to encapsulate all 613 Old Testament commandments, and so he summarizes them all in these massive commands to love God with everything that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting is how Jesus responds to this summary statement. He says, that's right, do this and you will live. Now, as uh, Christians, that should sound a little bit surprising because I've never said that from this pulpit, right? I would never say that the way that you inherit eternal life is to be hyper-obedient. But why is Jesus saying it here? Am I out of sync with the Messiah just a little bit? Uh, all my language of faith and grace, is that just something I made up, right? It's not, by the way. Um, the reason that Jesus is saying this is because the new covenant has not yet been established. What is the new covenant? The new covenant was promised in the Old Testament, and it was a covenant of complete gracious exoneration and forgiveness that would be enacted by the blood of Jesus. That's why at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of my new covenant, which is given for you, right? He was about to initiate that new covenant of grace and redemption through his death, but until that was in place, people were under the law. People were under the law. So it's not surprising that Jesus gives a legal answer in this particular context. What's funny, though, is the lawyer was not satisfied. Can you imagine that? He's not satisfied. He gets very insecure. And the text says that he wants to justify himself or make himself look better than he is, a little smarter than he is. And we've all done, well, okay. Some of us have done this, right? When you say that you've read a book that you've never read so that you can keep up with conversation. I mean, not you, but your friends, they do that. And, um, and he says, Fine. I mean, if that's your answer, I mean, tell, let's get a little more specific. Let's get specific. Uh, who's my neighbor? Let's really live into this. Let's think about this. And Jesus answers his theological question about neighbor with a story, and a story that has in the midst of it a great scandal, a great offense, about non-neighbors and about true neighbors. So here's the non-neighbor bit. This is verse 30. I invite you to read along with me. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Just a few uh, words about this uh, bit of text. The setting is important. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was, at least in that day, uh, a twisting path through various uh, uh, bits of hillside and mountain terrains and cliffs and left lots of nooks and crannies in the way for uh, thieves to hide in. And lots of people were mugged. And some of you in this congregation have been mugged. You understand what it means to have some of your stuff stolen. Well, that happened all the time. And so uh, it is surprising that it happened to this man. He was a victim of assault. He was a victim. He didn't invent his crisis. It befell him, right? 
Uh, and, and we know precious little about this man from the story. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know his job. We don't know his religion. We don't know his family life. All we know is how he was treated. That's what the text says. He was attacked, he was stripped, and then he was left for dead, and then later ignored in his near comatose state. Okay. Now, I only want to say this about the description of him. The man's nakedness is really significant, actually, that he was stripped, because various tribes and nations, especially in that day, wore distinctive garments to mark themselves as belonging to a particular people group. So if this man was actually wearing something that a passerby would see and say, oh, that's one of my people, he might stop and help him. But the man was stripped and therefore had no visible identity markers. And so he is entirely vulnerable. He has no money, he has no transport, he's in the middle of nowhere, and he has no distinctive clothing that would signal friends. And so eventually, you know, there are some passers-by, some people on a nice stroll. By the way, some people think it's significant that it's a road from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho because Jericho was known as like Las Vegas, and there's a priest walking to Las Vegas, and there's a Levite walking to Las Vegas. I mean, they probably had really pure motives. They're going to go convert people. It's really good, really good, top drawer. Um, but now, who are these people? Well, Levites, as you may know, were like probably one of the most special, or the most special tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the Levites were the tribe from which priests were selected. Now, not every Levite was a priest, but all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. And so it's a special tribe. And then you have the priests who are special people who make offerings and sacrifices in the temple. And the point I think that Jesus is making here is that both of these men had reputations as experts. If you had a crisis in life, if you had to work through some material, and you wanted to know if divine revelation had any impact or anything to say, these are the people that you would seek out. Uh, they knew religion, they knew the stories, they knew the applications, they read the bestsellers, they had the commentaries, they would teach swaths of material, and they would influence how people think and how people feel and, and, and how they would live. And what's interesting, of course, is that both of these men, who knew the tradition better than you and better than me, uh, uh, saw the victim. They saw the man in a near comatose state, in a gutter, on the side of the street. And therefore, they can't claim ignorance. But how, how did they react? Avoidance. Avoidance, right? Not only did they pass him by, but the text is really clear. They passed him by in a more deliberate and even theatrical way. They walked away to the other side of the street so they wouldn't even get within 20 yards of the guy, you know? Now, some people um, assume that they were cruel. The reason that they're walking away is because they, they have a high level of disgust for things like this, and they just wanted out of the situation um, because they thought it was gross. I'm not sure that's actually true. It's hard to know. But certainly, within Judaism, there was this very serious theology of ritual purity. And maybe, maybe, these men, this Levite and this priest, thought that the man was dead, and you're forbidden sometimes from touching a dead, unclean body. And so they were worried that they would be polluted in some uh, personal, physical, even existential sense. So they wanted to keep their distance. And they did. And maybe they would have even seen that as being obedient. They were doing the right thing. They were remaining pure. 
Uh, and I think sometimes it's really easy to blame these two gents. I think it's really easy, but I'm, I'm going to like ask you to raise your hand in your heart if you've ever totally walked on the other side of the street. Because when you see a victim who has been absolutely devastated by the world or by bullies, you know that if you involve yourself, there's intrinsic risk that comes along with that involvement. If I align myself with the victim, maybe they'll come after me. This happens when Jesus is about to die, right? Where are all his buddies that day? They all run away because they fear guilt by association, and they don't want to be bullied and clobbered in the same way. And so I'm wondering if you've ever walked away. I have times in my own life, in my haunted memory in which I've done that. And those memories never quite leave me because I acted out of accord with God's justice. But I know I'm not alone because we've all walked on the other side of the street at times. Uh, But, but, um, this priest and this Levite, well, they, they thought to themselves, you know, there are some who at least functionally are not our neighbors. They're not our neighbors, so we're off the hook this time. Uh, And so, as we've engaged in the world in various ways, whether it's seeing a vagrant who has Tourette's or uh, somebody with a flat tire on the side of the road at 2 a.m. who really needs some help or uh, a neglected child begging for a little bit of our attention, uh, we've, we've set up our own boundaries. Boundaries that are too high, walls with too much barbed wire, and we have not entered in, and we walked away, just like they walked away. We treated people like non-neighbors. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there, though, because Jesus gets a little neighborly. Uh, he, he, he invents this burden bearer in verse 33. So let me read it. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is the zinger in the text, undeniably the zinger, uh, that it's a Samaritan. Many of you know this, read it for those who don't. Uh, Samaritans are descendants of the children of Israel. They're descendants of the Jews who intermingled uh, their DNA, who bred with, if you will, uh, the Assyrian community, at least early on. Who are the Assyrians? Uh, think orcs from Lord of the Rings. Like, not a great group of people, very much into like blood rituals, pagan sacrifice, um, and thuggery, you know, brutal human beings. They compromised their standards. Generations later, you have people that are half Jewish, half Assyrian, or half Jewish and half something else. Uh, They only accept the first five books of the Old Testament. They worship in a different location other than Jerusalem, and they were seen as a scandalously non-neighborly. Um, many in the Jewish community would have referred to them as dogs, sort of subhuman entities. Uh, and Jesus makes this man, the outcast, the one that nobody would have lunch with, the hero. He's the one who wears the cape in this story. Um, this man who is compromised. He is more priestly than the priests, more Levitical than the Levites. And what does this Samaritan do? Well, a lot of things. Notice the verbs in this passage, all of the activity that's going on. Uh, He first sees the man, the same thing that the other two do, right? He sees, but then he has compassion, 
Then he went to the man, bound his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, set the man on an animal so he wouldn't have to walk, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and gave money to the innkeeper. Poured out his life. And I only want to unpack one of those uh, messages, which is the emotion in the passage, uh, which is translated compassion. In Greek, it's splagizomai, splagizomai, uh, coming from the Greek word splagma, which means quite literally the bowels, the bowels, from the bowels. What does it mean? That the deepest part of the man, the Samaritan's guts, were affected by the pain of another human being. Not his own pain, but the pain of somebody else. He was so afflicted on the inside, and some of you who have a strong sense of justice understand this, so afflicted by the torture and torment and near death of somebody he didn't even know, that he was absolutely moved to hiatus on all his plans, and enter in when he had no legal responsibility to do so. Absolutely plunged into the situation with everything that he had. Uh, but this word, splagizomai, is the same word that is used one other time in Luke's gospel, some of you will know, in Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son, whenever the father sees his ragtag son walking down the dirt road toward home again. And the father's heart was moved with splagizomai, with that kind of warmth and affection that compels him forward, that causes this dignified man to run toward his destroyed son. And that's the same word that's used here. What I love about this man, the Samaritan in the parable, is that he does not act as I often act. He, is never, uh, he never engages with the calculus of convenience. He instead just walks forward out of compassion and that compassion leads him to risk, right? He didn't know this victim, his backstory, how dangerous he might be. He didn't know how much it would cost him in the end. He might not have known how it could derail him in his immediate future. Uh, let's hope the Samaritan didn't make plans that day. The picnic is canceled, right? What's fascinating is, too, that he's lavish, but he's not messianic. He doesn't say to the beleaguered man, how about you live with me and my wife permanently and you can die in our home? I mean, he doesn't say that, but he does make sure that he's fully on the mend before he departs. He goes out of his way, more so than I've ever done. And that's really noteworthy uh, and really impressive, especially that it's coming from an enemy of Israel, the Samaritan. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, once wrote this about this parable. The question which the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? He realized that true religion, and this is certainly Christianity, Christianity doesn't involve only thought and theology, but the messiness of incarnate practicality. Some of us like to live in our heads. Why? It's safer there. Easier to defeat sparring partners in our own brains. But have you ever had a great deal of detestation for someone and then sat down in some awkward situation and were forced to have a meal with them? You begin to see that the very person you hate is at least a human being, and maybe you ought not to hate them with white-hot heat hatred. Lower it down to yellow-hot heat hatred, something to that effect. The messiness of incarnate practicality. What's fascinating is how the theological attorney hears this story from Jesus. 
Uh, he hears it, and then Jesus, of course, asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Notice what he can't even bring himself to say. He can't utter the words, the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, some people think the lesson from this parable is quite simple. Everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is our neighbor. There are no limits, no boundaries. Uh, everybody deserves your neighborliness. That is certainly true and could be deduced from this passage. But I think this text wants us to go a little deeper. And namely, given the example of the devastated man stripped bare, I think the text might mean something like this. The people who are most fragile who are most destroyed, who are most made the victim, who are most defenseless. They may not look like it, but they are most especially our neighbors. The people that we would rather turn away from are especially our neighbors, whoever they might be, whether it's the unborn child or the pregnant teenager who is terrified and feels entirely alone, like her options are limited, kid who is desperately unsure at age 12 of their gender identity, the single dad, the single mom, the victim of abuse and neglect, the person who at a young age was taken advantage of by somebody that they trusted. Those are our neighbors. Uh, what is Jesus doing? He is trying to reverse uh, what was said uh, from Cain to God. Do you remember after Cain kills Abel, God asks him that pregnant question, where is your brother? And he said, it's not a wise thing to say to the Almighty, am I my brother's keeper? Cain thought the answer was no. God thought the answer was yes. And here we have Jesus again saying, it's the man now bathed in blood on the side of the road or outside the garden who is in fact your brother, and you are his keeper. Uh, and so that's something about the non-neighbors and something about the, the true neighbor of this beleaguered man. Now let me offer this word to the church. I do so with, uh, with great humility and tenderness. You know, the church, especially in the United States, though not only here, has gained a reputation. By the way, it's not always fair. We are often misrepresented. In every Clint Eastwood movie, we are evil right? Every single one, there's a Catholic priest, and he's terrible. Um, so it's not always fair, but we get the reputation, and sometimes it's deserved, of being more like the Levites and the priests than the Samaritan, where we do see and perceive injustices and yet ignore the plight of those who have been harmed and instead walk away. These problems within the church are found everywhere, from the Roman Catholic Church to, with its uh, at times violence and abuse of children and adolescents. The Southern Baptist Convention just met and talked a lot about this within their own ranks. A lot of things were hushed up over the years. Same thing happened in the Sovereign Grace uh, Ministry uh, churches. Uh, we've seen that in the Anglican Church in North America as well as all other Anglican expressions or Presbyterian expressions, Methodist expressions. Uh, we add very famously now in the Midwest a lay catechist who abused scores of people, who is just now being tried for it. And then, of course, we have the, the abusive celebrity ministers within the broader evangelical world, whether it's Mark Skull, Ravi Zacharias, and so forth. 
But what has been the message that has been said so frequently to the victims or survivors uh, of those malicious attacks, that abuse? Very often it's stay quiet. Don't interrupt the ministry. Do not diminish the good name of this particular teacher. Forgive and move on without addressing the problem or the pain. Uh, Regarding abuse at the hands of leadership within the church, one wise man said this, many, far too many, members of church leadership believe that their intense and lusty desires offer them an infinite meadow, and they're allowed to pick all the flowers they want. But they are not picking flowers. They are ripping plants from the earth and assuring by their actions that in the scorched and barren soil they've defiled that nothing more will ever grow. Abuse or abandonment at the hands of the church, people that walk away, often means that lives are permanently destroyed and never fully recover. The hardest part of my job as a minister is hearing about church abuse, people that have been abused or abandoned, left, uh, not heard. I think it's a miracle that they're still at church at all, and certainly a miracle that they're still willing to talk to me, given all that they've been through. Now, I realize, being that this is our first service and first sermon in a new place, that this is kind of heavy, and I thought about preaching about something else, because it's a hard text in some ways, and yet I think it paves the way to God's glorious design for us. I think there is good news that's intrinsic. Actually, it's all over this passage, and I want to shift now to the good news of this passage. Um, Sharon Beck, she's here tonight, so glad she's here tonight, uh, had a a time of prayer at the beginning of our church plant, and a vision uh, was given to her about the, the potential within our body and what we could maybe offer the world. She saw at the time, I hope she still remembers and can verify this, um, she saw something like a battlefield and a large white canvas tent with a red cross on the top of it, like the old hospital tents in the Civil War, being stretched out so that destroyed people could come and find shelter. I've never forgotten that. And she said it's like the tent can keep expanding and expanding for more and more people who have been devastated who need to recover. Well, our call in this church and just in the church as apprentices of Christ is to shelter the fragile and the weary and the vulnerable, for they are certainly our neighbors, and to give people the opportunity to speak, to say, to express pain that they've experienced, sometimes at the hands of the church. Let me give you, by the way, just a very brief rule of thumb here at Grace Anglican. And it's important, and I'll have this written down later, but just for what it's worth so you can hear it from me. If you know someone in our parish who is in danger ever, um, even if you have a suspicion that there's something off or wrong, either with a minor or with an adult, or if a volunteer or staff member is acting dubiously, please email both me and the senior warden. The senior warden is the head of the vestry. Um, Email both of us, because that, that is the vestry and the rector, will keep each other in accountability if we both receive that kind of note. Um, And that spreads the awareness. If I ever act grossly out of accord, you contact the bishop, right? There are ways in which these things ought to be held accountable. Should we hear anything, we will do due diligence and search it out because I care desperately about people that have been hurt and destroyed. 
By the way, it may not be anything that's happened to you lately. It could have been 30 years ago. You experienced something within the body of Christ that you ought not to have experienced, and you just need to talk about it with somebody. We're here for you. And it is not a burden to us. It's actually a privilege. It's a privilege that you would open up in that way and communicate about real pain that's occurred to you. But I want this place, very desperately, I want this place to be as safe as possible within a fallen world, within a devastated context, that we would, in fact, fulfill that vision of the stretched-out canvas tent uh, to be a hospital for all people. Now, I actually made a silly prayer at uh, the beginning of the day, which was, Lord, I have no way to wrap up this sermon that is very effective. And then, I kid you not, minutes later, I got an email from a student who graduated a while ago, who attended Grace Anglican, who was in fact abused terribly in a church context. And she wrote to me about that today without knowing what I was talking about. It's almost like we are heard by heaven, like, you know? And this is what, and I asked her permission if I could share this little paragraph, and she said, absolutely. And she's got a great story, a lot of tragedy, but a beautiful soul. These are the words from today. I so deeply appreciated seeing the body of Christ come together at Grace to support people who really needed it. I saw there the opposite of church hurt. I saw church healing. I experienced this at Grace. I don't think I would be at church at all anymore if it were not for the past four years at Grace and the culmination of all the goodness that I witnessed there. Now I am finally free to be a part of the body of Christ without shame or terror I don't believe that the church is for perfect people. It is for traumatized people and difficult people. It is also for those who have failed and done harm. I am so grateful to have learned this because now I don't ever have to be alone again. Congrats on the new building, Ethan. I will be praying for your ministry and visiting those Lutherans when I can too. Isn't that good? She found the wider place. She found a balm in Gilead, and she didn't stay in the same place because every time, every time pain comes into the grace of God, the world widens up a little bit, and you get a little bit more liberated and a little bit more free, a little bit of redemption and release. So in closing, there's this ancient Greek icon of the parable of the prodigal, excuse me, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's one fascinating element in this icon, Jesus. Jesus is displayed as the Samaritan himself. Jesus is the unlikely one, the and with the mixed Assyrian blood. Jesus is the one who walks the twisting terrain, looking for victims of assault and humiliation. And tonight, dear brother, dear sister, Jesus Christ stares at you. And when he finds you, he pours out the water and the oil. He wraps your wounds. He transports you home and feeds you with bread and wine and pays all your debt. So may we, in this new chapter of ministry, expand that healing canopy, and may we all treat each other as the beloved neighbors of God. Amen.